Welcome to the RUF Berkeley podcast. RUF is a campus fellowship centered around experiencing and expressing the love of God to our campus, our classmates, and our community. For more information, check out our website at rufberkeley.com or find us on Instagram at rufberkeley. So I'm going to show my age a little bit uh, with this opening illustration. Who in here has seen or heard of the movie Hook? Have you, or if you've seen it, raise your hand. Okay, that's more than I expected. It was definitely made before you were alive. Uh, but I think it is a uh, fantastic film. I think it's one of the most underrated films ever. And we've been watching it in the Dawes house um, uh, quite a bit recently. We've probably watched it two or three times in the past month. I have three little boys. Uh, one of them is not old enough to know he's alive yet. He's about four weeks old. The other two know that they're alive, and we certainly know that they're alive. Uh, they love the movie, uh, so definitely watch it if you haven't seen it. But here's the basic gist for those of you who haven't seen it. There are no spoilers, even though it's old enough now that I could spoil it, and it's just on you. Um, here's the basic gist. So it's, it's an adaptation of the old um, Peter Pan story. And in this film, Robin Williams plays Peter Pan, and he's grown up. And he's now married with two kids, and he doesn't live in Neverland anymore, and he goes by the name of Peter Banning. And he's a successful attorney who's consumed with his work, and he's kind of neglectful of his family. He misses his son's baseball game at the very beginning of the film, and that's kind of this point of conflict throughout the film for father and son. Uh, But while they're attending this event, he and his wife are attending an event one night, Captain Hook uh, uh, the, the movie's namesake, Hook, um, Captain Hook <clears throat> somehow traverses time, space. I feel like I just inhaled a particle of fiberglass or whatever these are made of. But I'm like, I know I didn't just swallow a bug. Um, <clears throat> Captain Hook somehow figures out how to traverse time, space, reality and enters into the real world and he kidnaps Peter's two kids while they're asleep um, kind of bulldozes past the babysitter. The parents are away at this event. He kidnaps the kids. Peter Banning and his wife return back, and they're going crazy. They call the police. They follow every possible lead, but no one can make sense of this abduction. The only evidence they have is this pirate-looking sword in a wall with a letter that says, I have your kids, signed Captain James Hook. People think it's like a gag or something. Until Wendy, Wendy, Myra, Angela, Darling, Uh, She's an older lady in this film, and she has been to Neverland before, and she still remembers it. She reminds Peter of who he really is. She says, you're Peter Pan. She opens this book. This is you. She says, only you can save your children. You have to remember who you really are. And Peter has lost something so integral to his life, right, his children, But he refuses to let go of his current identity. He can't even remember. He doesn't believe her. And he refuses to let go of his current identity as this powerful attorney and embrace his true identity to rescue the most precious thing to him until this tiny little fairy shows up named Tinkerbell. And she flies in. She traverses time-space reality somehow, too. She shows up to the house. She flies in through the window. Peter's like, what in the world is going on? He's dismayed. There's some back and forth. He almost kills her, but she survives. But then she pulls the rug out from under him while he's standing. He flips in the air. He falls. She wraps him up in the rug, sprinkles him with uh, fairy dust, and then flies him off to to Neverland. 
So she, she forces him, she drags him off, flies him off, and forces him to come to grips with who he really is. Because there's only one way that he can get what he longs for, and that's by becoming what he's meant to be. Okay? So Tinkerbell shows up in an act of protest in Peter Pan's life, saying, you think you're this, but this is who you really are. And if you're not going to believe me, I'm just going to pull the rug out from underneath you and take you there myself to show you who you are and where you belong. And in our series this semester, we've been saying that God is always moving towards us in Jesus, who is full of grace and truth. And the proof that God is always moving towards us is that he took on flesh in the person of Jesus and he dwelt among us. Hence the title of this series, He Dwelt Among Us. And so last week we looked at uh, the beginning part of John chapter 2, where Jesus uh, is at a wedding and everybody has been well served and they run out of alcohol and then they go to Jesus and he's like, let's keep the party going. He brings more wine to the party. So we call it the party dwelt among us. We're looking at these different scenes and scenarios of the life of Jesus and trying to unpack what does this actually mean about God's love for you and him moving towards you always? So one of the ways he's moving towards us in Jesus is by throwing a party that points to a party that we were made for. This week, though, he doesn't bring a party. He brings a protest. He brings a protest. And we need to realize that sometimes when God is moving toward you, it looks and it feels like protest. It looks and it feels like protest. And this brings us to our first point. Here's the first point. He protests what is precious to us. Jesus protests what is precious to us. Let me explain. Let's look at at the text really quick, verses 13 through 14. There's three things that I want to point out here. Let me read it really quick, 13 through 14. Um, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now, as I just said, there's three things that I want to highlight here, and it's the Passover, Jerusalem, and the temple. Okay, what John is doing here is he's taking us to the heart of of the Jewish religion. So earlier in chapter two, Jesus is hanging out in Cana of Galilee. It's a little bit outside of Nazareth, his hometown. I don't really know anything special about Cana of Galilee other than there's this story of Jesus at a party there, a wedding party there, taking us there. And then geographically, right, the text, the narrative is moving us centrally into this, um, into the heart of the Jewish people and the Jewish religion and the Jewish tradition. Right? This is their people, this is their parties, and this is their place. So the first thing I want to point out is Jerusalem. Their place, their home, right? This is the center of Jewish life. It's the home of their people. Uh, it is their religious and ethnic identity, right? It, it's just home. It's their place. It's like, you know, w- when I came here and I was like processing, like, man, California is kind of weird. I'm not a California native, but Morgan is a California native, and she talked about feeling this sense of ownership about California, like you're not allowed to talk bad about this is my place, you know. Jesus is protesting their place, right? Then there's the Passover. 
Okay, this is, they're in their place, <clears throat> and then they're in their party, right? The Passover is a party of sorts. It's central to their lives. In the, in the Passover, it commemorates um, a, a really fascinating story found in Exodus 12 of the angel of death passing over the homes of those who placed the blood of the lamb on the doorpost um, as, as God was trying to free his people from Egyptian bondage and slavery and sent plagues on Egypt. One of the final and worst ones was the death of the firstborn son, but the angel of death would pass over and death would not come to a house if blood were there. Am I good? Oh. Um, so <clears throat> he's protesting their place. He's protesting their party, the Passover. And then he is, uh, sorry, his people, their people and their party, and then their place, the temple, right? So Jerusalem, Passover, and the temple. And we're just increasingly going to like the heart of the matter here. That's where John is taking us. So we have the temple. The temple, if everything else is the center, this is the epicenter of Jewish faith and practice during Jesus' day. Before Jesus is on the scene, everything that uh, the Jewish people knew, the people of God knew, was the temple. And this is where atonement was made. It's where priests would mediate on behalf of the people. They would, they would pray on behalf of the people. They would make sacrifices on behalf of the people. And uh, give you an example of that. Like RUF kind of got in a little bit of trouble at the end of last year. And if it weren't for our beloved signatories, they were like our mediators uh, with the university. We didn't really do anything that bad, so don't, <laughs> don't judge me. Um, but like they were mediating on our behalf, like, oh, this is actually what happened. We really apologize, blah, blah. University's like, awesome, great, no big deal. We'll get through this. Um, so the temple kind of housed all of this stuff. But most importantly, it's where God's presence dwelled in the Holy of Holies, right in the middle of the temple. Okay, and so Jesus is protesting what is precious to the Jewish people. It is life for them. Okay, but but the thing is, it was never meant to be permanent. And instead of these signs, instead of things like Passover and the temple and even Jerusalem as a geographical area, right, instead of it being just a sign that pointed to a greater place, a greater Jerusalem and a greater party, a new heavens and new earth kind of party, and a greater person, namely Jesus, these precious items became like gods to them, like idols, okay? They were identity markers not for their, their faithfulness and their piety or their godliness or their, their um, humility, whatever it may be, but they, they were these markers for exclusion and extortion and exploitation and superiority and comfort and control, all idolatry. This is what it had become. And so what does Jesus do? He brings the protest. He's making whips. He's driving out sweet little Bo Peep sheep, driving out oxen. I, like, this, what, what a day, time to be alive. I mean, could you imagine like going to church one Sunday and there's like, oxen in in the sanctuary that that just that'd be strange um anyway so he's he's driving them out he's turning over tables he's pouring out money 
And he gets rid of the pigeons. Uh, the pigeons, we could probably all agree on that act. There's a lot of pigeons in Berkeley that I wish we would just destroy. You'll probably never see Berkeley students standing up for the rights of pigeons on Sproul. I, I don't think that'll. Chickens, yes. Pigeons, probably not. Um, Jesus protests what is precious to us because they become our identities. They become the things that if we can control and maintain, we will get the life that we want. And he knows what we think is precious. He knows what we think is precious is actually poison to us. And he protests it. And so you want to know in this passage here, you want to know what the poison is here. I think the best word for it really is religion. That is the poison that Jesus is protesting. You see, the reason why these things, why, why Passover, Jerusalem, the temple, had become so precious to the Jews is because it was the way they secured for themselves the life that they always wanted. It was a self-salvation project. Buy these things, come to this place, do this dance, eat this food, blah, 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 blah. And that is what religion ultimately is. Sure, there's a way to pro- like positively define religion. I don't want to totally throw the word out altogether. But generally speaking, that is what religion ultimately is. Do these things and you will get what you long for. And therefore, you can kind of extrapolate and extend the meaning of religion to all areas of life. Berkeley offers you a religious way of life to secure the life that you want. Do these things and then you will be Elon Musk or whoever it is. Do these things and you will be X, Y, or Z. And I want this to sink in tonight. All right, if you, there's a couple things I really want you to remember tonight, but here's one of them. The thing that will make Jesus protest more than anything is your attempts to save yourself. The thing that will make Jesus protest more than anything is your attempts to save yourself. It's your own little self-salvation projects. And that is what my heart and your heart loves to do. And he will turn those tables over every time because Christianity is not religion. Christianity is the gospel. Christianity is good news. And the good news is that Jesus refuses to let you succeed at saving yourself. He will protest day and night. All of the little behavioral things. Look, I'm not trying to say that virtue and morality are bad things in and of themselves, just like Jerusalem, the temple, and the Passover weren't bad things in and of themselves. But we take those things and we make them ultimate things. They're terrible gods. But the reality is, is this hurts. You know, when Jesus protests what's most precious to me or precious to you, it hurts. This is actually some of the things that make us walk away from the faith or even reconsider, like, should I be a Christian? Because Jesus hurts so bad, but Berkeley feels so good or whatever it is that feels so good, at least in the immediate moment. And so some of you are thinking right now about things that are so precious to you, things that seem so core to your identity but, but something is off because every time you cling to this precious commodity, something always goes wrong. Something always goes wrong. And now you're thinking, Jesus is actually protesting in my life right now. 
Like you're, you're thinking about this and you're like, maybe this is God protesting in my life right now the things that I'm clinging to. He's turning over tables in my life and he's digging up and he's pouring out treasure that I've hoarded and he's running off the pets in my life. My sheep and my old ox, everything, everything is gone. And it hurts. And I don't, I don't just mean that tongue-in-cheek. It really can hurt, right? Because if he would remove something so precious to these people, well, that means that, that nothing is off limits to Jesus in your life or mine. Absolutely nothing. And that's a scary thought. That's a really scary thought. So some of us, you know, to give a few examples, some of us structure our entire lives around comfort. Comfort is everything. And so we manipulate every situation to preserve our comfort. Because comfort is so precious to us. It's our Savior. I've got to be comfortable. And, and Jesus will protest. He will put you in a, the small group that's not your first choice. We just had to break up small groups. I haven't heard any complaints. I just, you know, I'm sure some of you had that thought. Like, man, my, my best friend's in that group. You know, I can't go, you know. He's going to put you in a small group. It's not your first choice. He'll give you a dirty, stinky roommate. He will take you, if you're me, he'll take you from sweet home Alabama and move you to Berkeley and say, if you love me, feed my sheep. He will protest the poison of comfort in your life so that you don't live in his world thinking it's your world. And it'll hurt. It'll be good for you. I'm old enough at least to really believe that. But it will hurt. It can be something as simple as comfort, right? Which is not really that simple because so many of us go to so many extremes to secure our comfort. But it can be as simple as comfort or something as fragile and sensitive as sexuality. It's like a topic that we just are only allowed to talk about in certain ways now. And many of us, actually no, all of us, I don't care who you are or, or what your preferences are or how you identify, every single person in this room struggles with making sexuality the savior of our lives. If I can love who I want to love, if I can experiment how I want to experiment, if I can embrace who I say I truly am, then, then I will be lovable. And then I'll be likable, and then I'll be content, and then I'll be satisfied. And you know what? In an always, always, always gentle way, because Jesus is always gentle when he deals with our sexual brokenness, Jesus will protest. Jesus will protest. Sexuality is a beautiful thing. A, and a fun thing, and an awesome thing. And it's created by God and celebrated by God. But our sexuality is not exempt from the fall. There's no way you can read the Bible and say everything is going to hell in a handbasket except this particular set of preferences 
we're all subject to it. The curse is found as far as the eye can see. And so my sexuality, it too cries out with all of creation to be made new. And when my sexuality becomes my self-salvation project, Jesus is not going to let me drink that poison. He will protest gently, lovingly, kindly, in a way that will probably, as we'll hear actually next week, um, in a way that's really transformative and healing. But he will protest nonetheless. When Jesus protests what is precious to us, it will hurt. And it may be at the center of our lives. But here's what John also wants you to know. He wants you to know that you're in good hands because Jesus doesn't just protest what is precious to us. He provides what is precious to him. He doesn't just protest what is precious to us. He provides us what is precious to him. And that's actually a really good thing. You know, in Berkeley, we're familiar with protest. Berkeley, Oakland, we're familiar with protest. And what do people protest? What have people been protesting for the past year or so, right? It's, it's the, you all know the answer to that. It's the continued loss of life, the continued loss of innocent life, of black lives, of Asian lives, and so many other things that are protested basically in the name of this is taking life and it is not right. And so what makes us think that God is not a God of protest too? God will always be protesting sin because sin takes life. Jesus has to protest. Whatever takes life, God will protest. And whatever gives life, God will provide. That is what John is wanting us to see. Whatever takes life, God will protest. And whatever gives life, God will provide. He provides what is precious to him, and that is life. And it is your life. And if you are in Jesus, your life is now hidden in Christ. And here's what Jesus is protesting. He is protesting our plans to pay for what he provides for free. Jesus is always protesting our plans to pay for what he provides for free. So when Jesus says later in this passage, do not make my father's house a house of trade. What he's saying is that you can't sell or buy what has been given for free. In, in some of these translations, um, <clears throat> uh, the word for pigeon is actually translated doves. Uh, glad they use pigeons because I like doves more than pigeons. But uh, St. Augustine actually picked up on this um, Holy Spirit kind of imagery here. You'll notice like, if you read Jesus' uh, baptism account, when he's baptized, the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. And so, in effect, what's going on here is that they are selling, what, what they are selling in the temple here is God himself. And God is not for sale. You can't buy a self-salvation project. Salvation is not for sale. It is for free. Because Jesus provides what is most precious to him, and that is your life saved eternally. And don't, look, this is a hard thing about being, um, man, I'm recorded now, so I just feel like I can't 
say some things. This is the hard thing about being a Christian and a pastor sometimes. Like I say things like eternal life or saved eternally and these weird cheesy Christian thingies pop into your head. I'm not talking about floating on clouds and playing a harp. That is boring. I don't want that, okay? The, the picture that the Bible gives us of eternal life or salvation is literally the fullness of the world, of the entire cosmos. It is both individual, it is corporate, and it is cosmic. It is everything that this world has that is good. That points to like the immensity of what the new heavens and new earth will be. And that is the very thing that you're trying to secure for yourself in a self-salvation project, whether you're religious or not. If you're religious and you're living under the fear of these laws over your head that if I do X, Y, or Z, or if I, you know, get drunk at a fraternity party, whatever it is, or I sleep with somebody one night, you think like if I do these things, then God will never love me. And so I have to behave so that God will love me. And Jesus is saying, no, he's going to protest that all day long. And then there's some of you like, Jesus is for the birds. This is weird white people stuff. There's some truth to that. Um, But so what you do is you just take your religion and you shift it somewhere else and you say, if I get straight A's and manage my mental health unraveling, then I'll get, then I'll have the life that I really want. I'll be saved. I'll be saved from being like the religious people from Alabama. Also not a bad goal. Um, Sorry, people from Alabama, I love you. Um, But you get my point. Where was I? Um, uh, so when I say things like your life saved eternally, like this is the picture that the Bible gives us. Jerusalem and the temple, all these are not like burned and like now we're just going to float in this ether. These are made new. The things that you love most in this life will be with you in the life to come. Augustine comments on this reality. He says, let them who try to sell God Beware of the scourge of small cords, a whip. The dove is not for sale. It is given freely. Freely provided. This is why Jesus says what he says when they ask him for a sign. What sign will you give us? And he responds, he says, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up again. You know what he's saying? He's saying, destroy the thing so precious to you. The thing that you hold on to so tightly that gives you comfort or confidence or acclaim or prestige or piety or pleasure or whatever it is. Whatever is precious is so precious that that has a hold of you. Destroy that. And I will give you what is precious to me. And it is your very life. The very thing that you're after. The very thing that Peter Banning was after that Tinkerbell had to snap him out of to secure the life that he was meant for, life of his children. The very life that you long for cannot be bought. It cannot be performed. It cannot be acquired through effort or willpower or sheer determination. The very life that you long for is the very life freely given to you in Jesus. One little quick note on this, too. If you're in this room right now and you do not claim to be a Christian, one, we're really glad that you're here. You're totally welcome here. We need you a part of this community. I need you to be my friend. And uh, this is not just something for you, like all these things that you're chasing after. Like once you get Jesus, everything in your life is just fine. 
This is as much for you as it is for those of you that already profess faith. Every day you're tempted to make something else Christ in your life. You're tempted to put something else on the throne. And every day, repentance is not a burden. Repentance is a turning from death to life. It's fueled by joy in a life that's secured for you and not by you. That's the purpose of Jesus' protest. It's not to shame you. It's not to mock you. It's not to ridicule you. It's to provide a life that only he can provide. Hebrews 10 says it this way, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It is impossible for your blood, sweat, and tears to take away sin. The chaos and destruction in your life, the immorality, whatever it may be, sin is a catch-all word for the fall and the curse and the brokenness of the world. No amount of blood, sweat, and tears from you can take that away. But the blood of Jesus can, and it cannot be bought because it's free. Um, I'm going to end with a little story from my own life, a little season of of protest that I experienced. Um, I was in a long relationship in in college, and uh, she was a great person, and I was an okay person, I guess. Um, But together, it it was toxic. And uh, that relationship became, for me, a way to control my comfort, basically. It became this precious little idol in my life that I could feed. And I'll, I'll spare you the details. We, I'm happy to go into it one-on-one. But basically, in the, in the tamest terms that I can give you, it became this relationship for me to control my comfort, to get what I wanted, blah, 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 blah. But every time I fed this idol... Literally, every time, I would sink further and further and further and further into depression. Now listen, hear me clearly on this. Not all depression is due to our actions, okay? I'm not saying that. But some of it is. Some of it absolutely is. Because we're embodied beings. You know, if you cut your hand off, you're going to be sad. Okay, you, you cut your hand off. So, like, my point is, like, when we do certain things repetitively, it will mess with our psychological state. And when we're united to Jesus and we're doing certain things, it doesn't change the faithfulness of Jesus, praise the Lord. And you, let, let, another preface, you're, you are, you're going to be united to Jesus and do all kinds of crazy things. All right? It's just part of the normal life of sanctification. But in your experience of those things, you may experience all kinds of different things. And so I was, like, falling further and further into depression, and what was crazy is that it was like simultaneously Jesus felt very far from me and very close. And here's what I mean by that. He was far, or he felt far, okay? He's always near, but he felt far in that I had no joy in God, had no joy in following him. I had no confidence in him. And again, he surely hadn't changed, right? But I surely felt disconnected from life with God. He felt so far away from me. 
And Satan, of course, loves in that moment to think, well, the reason why is because you just won't obey rather than looking to Jesus and his obedience. So I'm believing lies left and right. He feels so far away, but at the same time, he felt so close. Because every time I fed this idol, I felt viscerally the protesting love of God for me. That I knew. The protesting love of God for me. Calling me to repentance. And it all came to a head one night. This is one of like the best memories of my life. It all came to a head one night. When my best friend and uh, kind of a big brother who's a pastor um, in Nashville now, basically... Um, confronted me about it. And uh, for, for hours, we sat there in his living room, and through them, Jesus was flipping the tables of my heart like left and right, and for the first time, I actually opened up. This is where I am. This is what I'm doing. And it was probably the first time in my life that I had tasted real repentance. Repentance is not a momentary thing only. But I was tasting the fruit of repentance. And we got on our knees and we all prayed together through tears. I'll never forget this. And this is, you know, Ken Leggett. We were in Huntsville, Alabama at the time. My best friend, Matt Patrick, he's the RUF campus minister at Wofford in South Carolina. And Ken has kids asleep. His wife's asleep. It's the middle of the night. We're sitting in the living room. We're on our knees. I'm tearful. They're tearful. We're crying, and then afterwards, uh, and this is probably what's so memorable about it, then afterwards, like the father throwing a party for the prodigal son who returns home, we got in the car, we went to our favorite liquor store, we bought an awesome bottle of bourbon, we went back to Ken's house, we poured around, we toasted the king, we toasted life, we toasted grace, we toasted mercy, and we drank that drink. Yeah. You know, uh, we weren't like, you know, <laughs> chugging bottles of bourbon. But we were enjoying God's good creation and God's good gift of mercy and grace through Jesus, his gift of protest. Jesus is a surgeon of the heart. He's a good shepherd. He's a friend. He's a savior, but he's a surgeon of the heart. And when you sense that Jesus is protesting something in your life, let me just encourage you, don't run from it. Don't double down. Don't hide in shame. I want to encourage you to sit in the rubble of the deconstruction and see what he rebuilds. Bring your friends into it. Not just everybody. Like you don't just throw your most you know, sensitive things out to everybody. But your trusted community, bring them into it. See what God rebuilds. Because in the rubble and wreckage of protest, God is certainly doing powerful work in your life free of charge, free of charge. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this night, and we thank you that no matter the protest that we experience or the rubble or the, the destruction or the deconstruction in our lives, it is nothing compared to the chaos and the rubble of the cross. Jesus was literally torn apart, his body torn apart, um, so that our lives would never taste that, that type of wrath or judgment or destruction. All of your protests in our lives is like a loving father meant to lovingly guide us 
in a way of life and love, both for the good of the world and the good of our neighbors and for your glory. And so, Lord, no matter what we do tonight, even tonight, would you help us to see Jesus is more beautiful and more believable even when he's turning over the tables in our lives. We pray these in Christ's name. Amen.